0: So we're going to be reading from Matthew 18, 21 to 35. <laughs> um, it says Matthew eighteen twenty-one to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Great to be opening God's Word with you this afternoon as we look at Matthew 18. And thanks um, for being here this afternoon despite the masks. Remember masks? Something cool and vintage just to bring back for the week, isn't it? But um, thank you for actually bothering to be here. Look, the one silver lining of all of this is that um, I don't know how much you're enjoying it, but I'm enjoying the banter between the premiers at the moment. And I enjoy how cocky Gladys was in her announcement on Thursday when she was saying things like, well, we're not going to overreact like some states and lock down the whole city. We're just going to do this, that and the other, unlike some states like Queensland and WA. So I'm really enjoying how these professional, these people with an incredible amount of responsibility and things, are just. there's a lot of high school banter at the moment. So I look forward to that in the coming weeks and months as well. Um, But also just by way of that, if you remember here at church, you would have got an email about the upcoming changes as we enter a new season of City Light, and that will be at a different site down at the high school. And May 30 still is the date. Unless things change significantly in terms of restrictions, that will still be the date. But we'll keep you posted as to whether or not that affects things. But look, that's going to be the same regardless as the year goes on. There's going to be bumps and wobbles here and there, and we'll just have to adapt like we always have on the way through. But as it has been over this year, I guess those are becoming slightly less regular as time goes on. But for now, we are staying the course at May 30. And also, I look forward to that time gathering together on the 26th as a church, just to bring this next season before God. Because He's the one who's still on the throne over over everything that's happening all over the world, not just in our part of Sydney. And so we look forward to seeing what's ahead in this next season, but also just um, taking some time as a, as a community to pray and just seek God over this season. So uh, May 26th is the time for that. So look forward to that as that comes up. But today we are we're going to be looking at Matthew 18. And if you've been with us over the year, you'll know that we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew, which we're calling the Way of Jesus, because it is Matthew's account of Jesus' birth, life, teaching, ministry, death, resurrection and everything Jesus taught about in between. Um, but if you are any kind of mathematician or not, you'll know that last week we're at week five, and this week we're at chapter 18, and those don't quite go in sequence. And the reason for that is we just thought on a scale-back service on Mother's Day, um, with less of us here, that we might just take a slight deviation to another teaching that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, uh, which is fitting for the day in this way. Um this year, some of you may know, may have heard, that Leela Abdallah was named Mother of the Year. And it was for a, a reason that's a little bit unusual when it comes to that kind of honor. The reason she was acknowledged was for, the, for demonstrating genuine courage in forgiveness. So if you know her story, last year a drunk driver mounted the curb at 133 kilometers and killed three of her children. And in the face of this, she pronounced publicly that she forgave the driver. I mean, she was interviewed about this moment because it was significant and it drew significant national attention. I can't remember a time where forgiveness has, has captured the national attention like it did in that moment. And when asked about it, she said she forgave and found strength to forgive quite clearly because of her conviction of Christian faith. She said, forgiveness is essential to us Christians. Our Father has forgiven our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus' last words on the cross were, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. And he asked us to forgive 70 times 7. So I, asked, so I forgave the driver because I trust God. He is a just God and I leave it in his hands. The act of forgiveness captured the hearts and minds of Australians, whether secular or religious. And so I thought it would be fitting to dive into the teaching of Jesus about why it is that his people are called to forgive what it means to forgive, and where it is that they draw deep resource and grace to be able to forgive even in the most difficult of circumstances. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into this teaching that Jesus lays out on forgiveness in Matthew 18. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you that you are a forgiving God, that you are an all-seeing, all-knowing judge, and yet you love us. You sent Jesus to die in our place, that our sins might be washed away and that we might be made new and clean. And Father, we pray that as we experience the depth of your forgiveness, that it would move us to be a people who are courageous to forgive also. Amen. So the story that Anna read out to us just before starts with a question. I don't know if you noticed it. In Matthew 18:21. Peter, who's one of the disciples, not just one of the disciples, probably one of the leaders of the disciples, if not the leader of the disciples at this point, comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question. Look what he says in Matthew eighteen twenty-one: It says, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, this question is coming off the back of a teaching that Jesus laid out about what it was going to be like to be his new people, the church. And he started laying out that, look, there are going to be sin issues. You're going to need to bring up issues with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to sin against one another, and you're going to need to deal with that in the church. That's going to be a reality. And so as Peter's ticking this over in his head, he's thinking, okay, so how often is this going to be happening? And so he comes to Jesus with a question. He says, all right, given that there's going to be the reality of sin and difficulty and friction in the church, how, how many times am I going to have to do this? Like seven times? Would that sort of be enough? Would that sort of punch my card? And the reason he's asking this is because forgiveness is hard. And so as he thinks about the reality of Jesus' new people and the idea that you're going to have to confront sin in the church, that you're actually going to have to forgive at times, he's trying to manage his expectations and just think, how many times am I going to have to do that? And so he just throws out a number like like seven because he's thinking this is going to be very hard to do. Because forgiveness, I mean, when you hear about a story like Lila Abdullah, it's in many ways, insp- I don't know if you find it inspiring, but I think most people would hear it and think that's, that's an incredible act of reconciliation. And in many ways you think, wow, wouldn't we be better people? And wouldn't we be a better society if there were more people like her and her husband around? But then at the same time, when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of everyday relationships and actually forgiving, we find it very hard, don't we? Why is it? One author outlines there are five reasons why we find forgiveness hard. The first is that debt is power. To forgive someone is to release them of a debt. But sometimes we like to hold on to it because debt is power. There's power in having something to hold over someone else's head. There's power in using someone's weakness and failure against him or her. In moments when we want our own way, you can pull out that old wrong that was done against you at just the key moment to humiliate them or to put them back in their place. Debt can be power. The second reason is that debt can be identity. We hold on to others' sins or weaknesses or failures because it makes us feel more righteous and superior. It allows us to believe that we're more righteous or mature than other people. We fall into the pattern of getting our sense of self not from what God has done for us and through us, but in our relation to other people and thinking that I'm actually morally superior to another person. Debt can be identity. Debt can be entitlement. Because of what other people have done to us, we can feel like I'm I'm owed something by all people. Carrying around other people's wrongs makes us feel deserving and therefore comfortable with being more self-focused at times. After everything I've been through, I deserve fill-in-the-blanks. Sometimes it's because debt is genuinely weaponry. The sins and failures that others have done to us, we carry around like a loaded gun. And it's very tempting to pull them out when we're angry. When someone has hurt us in some way, it's very tempting to hurt them back by throwing back in their in their face their own sin or weakness or failure. And lastly, debt puts us in God's position. We can start to feel like we are on the throne of the universe, casting out judgments upon others, and it feels for a moment exhilarating and good. And so sometimes we are reluctant to forgive because it means relenting from that position that we draw some kind of satisfaction from. So forgiveness is often hard, and unforgiveness, I think in many ways, is the default. And that's why Peter here says to Jesus, how many times am I going to have to forgive? Like at, at, a, at the upper end, maybe seven. Maybe he's trying to kind of lowball Jesus, like to pull the number down towards maybe a 15 or something like that. And then Jesus says something shocking to him. Look at what he says. In Matthew 18, 22, Jesus said to him, Do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, as some translations would have, or seventy times seven, which would be somewhere closer to five hundred. Now, at this point, I mean, first of all, it would have shocked Peter to the core because that's that's a complete blowout in terms of his number. But the reason Jesus mentions this number is not because you literally have like a cafe punch card of forgiveness things, and once you finally get to that magic number of like, I've, I've forgiven someone 77 times or 490 times, then I'm I've done, right? That's I'm finished. Now I just get to wait till Jesus takes me home. Now he's saying this number because it's basically like, it's just it's a significant number seven for their culture, and it's just lots of them. It's like saying just a thousand, a million, a billion, whatever. What he's saying is, it's going to be again and again and again and again. Even hearing that is exhausting. It's hard to forgive once, but over and over again. And perhaps because Jesus is anticipating their worry or their anxiety about this, he dives into a story that's going to illustrate why it is that Christians who follow Jesus are going to be called to forgive not just once or occasionally, but many, many times. And look at what he says in 1823 to 24. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, and this is how he describes what it means to be a follower of him. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So there's a king, and he's opening his accounting books, and he's flipping through, and he sees one person who owes him 10,000 talents. Now, in case you're not down with ancient Near Eastern currency, which, I mean, you should be, really, but in case you're not, uh, a talent was the highest denomination of currency. And to put it in kind of in context, to get a, single t- a, a talent was made up of 6,000 denarii, and a single denarius was about a day's wage. So in modern terms, if you just, if you just took the median income, a single talent would be worth about $900,000. Australian dollars. And he says here there's a debt of 10,000 talents. So that's 10,000 times 900. So we're talking about close to a 10 billion dollar debt here. Now that's how you know of course that this is a a story that's trying to illustrate a point because there's no king in the universe that would have been that wealthy that they could have forgotten about a 10 billion dollar debt that they loaned some punter in some backwater town. So he's trying to make a point here and look what it is. In Matthew 18:25 to 26, it says this, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. So the servant has a debt that he has racked up that is just way beyond what he could pay. And so the standard thing was that you and your family would be sold into slavery, which was not like New World slavery, which was forever slavery. You, were so, it was, you, you basically worked off your debt at a denarius a day per person until you had paid off your debt. The only problem is that this debt is so high that it would have taken 164,000 years to pay off at that rate. So it would have been generations of expanding families still not able to pay it off. And the crazy thing here is the servant... Falling before the king says, just give me time, I'll pay it off. And of course, the king sees right through and He's like, you, you're never going to pay it. Let's not be silly. But he has pity on him and forgives the debt. Now, this again is how you know this is a story and not a true story. Kings were not famous for forgiveness, not of significant debts and certainly not of a debt this size. But here, the king forgives. Now just imagine the kind of relief you would experience being released from a debt before that kind of authority. The the modern equivalent would be tantamount to someone who had had amassed gambling debts and was being hunted down by the mob and actually being told, you know what, forget about it, we're done with this. That's the kind of release he would feel. He would feel invincibly happy the rest of the day. Or so you would think. And then we see the twist in the story. Look what happens in 1828. says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So this man, who has just been forgiven a $10 billion debt, sees a fellow servant, not someone who works for him, someone of the same status in society as him, and he sees him and he remembers, this guy owes me 100 denarii. So it's not nothing, 100 days wages, maybe in today's terms, you know, 15, 20,000. And he sees him and he chokes him out and he says, you pay what you owe me. And the guy falls on his knees and he says the exact same words that he had just said before the king. You would think that would evoke for him some sense of remembrance or of pity, but instead, he has no pity on him and orders that this servant be thrown into prison. And it doesn't finish there. In 31, when his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you pleaded with me. And shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay off all his debt. So the other servants hear about this and they're outraged. They know how much this servant has been forgiven and what an outrageous act it is to then turn around and choke out a fellow servant for what really in, in the scheme of things is a minimal debt. And the king calls him before him and says, I forgave you all of this and you couldn't, forget even, a, you couldn't even forgive a 100 denarii to your fellow servant. I tell you, you're going to jail and you will pay off. You will stay there until your debt is completely paid off. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it would never happen. The whole story is outrageous. You'd never have a debt that large. You'd never have a king forgive it. You'd never have someone get forgiven that kind of debt and then turn around and not be able to forgive someone else, right? The whole story is crazy. And then Jesus lands it, and the whole meaning of this crazy story in 35 when he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now that's a heavy point to end on, isn't it? He finishes by making this point. Those who have been greatly forgiven are called to forgive. Those who have been greatly forgiven are called to forgive. And he's telling this story because it's a metaphor for our relationship with God. He's saying this is the gospel. If you really understand the gospel you'll see that you have been forgiven an incredible debt, a debt that you could not pay off, not even with your own life you couldn't pay it off. And instead it was forgiven you. And so you will be called to forgive others, a significant debt, but nothing compared to what you've been forgiven. And Jesus is saying this is what it's going to mean to be a follower of him. But notice that the point of the story is not, if you forgive, then God will forgive you. But if you have been forgiven, you will forgive. See, try and flip the story up. If Jesus was promoting a more religious transaction kind of view of salvation, it would have gone this way. There was a servant and a fellow servant owed him 100 denarii. He forgave that debt. His fellow servants reported all this to the king, and the king summoned him and said to him, You faithful servant, you are a prince now. Here is your 10,000 talents. Come live with me in my palace forever. That's how the story would have gone. And the religious motivation would be, if you do good, if you do a little bit of good, God will reward you massively. But here the message of the story is not that. Jesus is saying the motivation for forgiveness is that if you really understand the gospel, if you really understand what state you were in before God and how much you were forgiven and how costly that forgiveness was, the logical outworking of that is that you will be able to forgive others. If you've been greatly forgiven, you'll be called to forgive. Because we will be called to forgive and it will be difficult, but it's nothing compared to what it costs God to forgive us. Years ago, I read a book by Bishop Desmond Tutu, who's a South African bishop, and he wrote a book called uh, No Future Without Forgiveness. And he talks about the really incredibly peaceful transition, relatively, of power in South Africa from apartheid to post-apartheid. And, um, and really he was saying in terms, of, in terms of change of government, it's remarkable what happened and how little bloodshed there was um, and how peaceful re- really the, the transition was. And he said what was crucial to it was the process of amnesty that they went about, which was controversial at the time. And it went like this. For anyone who had committed any crimes under apartheid, you would be fully pardoned if you fully confessed. If you left out any details, if you, if you minimized something, if you moved it off, you would not receive pardon. But if you went before a tribunal and went on public record and declared everything you had done, and there were heinous crimes that were recorded, but if you laid out a full confession, you would be pardoned. And it was controversial but it was an act for national healing and for reckoning and also for moving forward. And Desmond Tutu makes this comment on it. He says, The cost of forgiveness for the people, that is, letting the debts go of these people who had committed crimes against them or family members, he said, The cost is indeed very high to ask the victims to pay. That happens to have been the price those who negotiated our relatively peaceful transition from repression to democracy believed the nation had to ask of its victims. Our freedom has been bought at a very great price. Forgiveness was the price of a peaceful transition for South Africa, or so Bishop Desmond Tutu would lay out. But think of the cost of what it had to cost God in order for there to be peace between God and humankind. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Jesus died once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. See, in South Africa, for there to be peaceful transition of government, there had to be forgiveness, and the price was paid by the people. But when it came to peace with God, it was Jesus himself who had to die. God had to give up his only son because the wages of sin is death, and it was a debt beyond what we could pay. And so Jesus came, he paid the price, and he rose again that all who believe in him would have forgiveness, would be washed completely clean would be reconciled to God. This is the $10 billion debt that we could not afford to pay that Jesus paid on our behalf. And so when Peter says to Jesus, how many times must I forgive? Jesus is saying, if you could understand what I'm about to do, you would know that it's going to be time after time after time because there will never be a time where your forgiveness exceeds in costliness what it costs God to forgive you. That's why Jesus tells this story those who have been greatly forgiven will be called to forgive. And it will be difficult, and they will be significant. But the inspiration, the grace to actually do it, comes from knowing how much we've been forgiven. You might not be like the servant in the story, but one who knows what we've been forgiven, that it might move us to forgive others of significant but lesser debts. And see, the call to forgive... And the Christian faith, according to Jesus, is not out of obligation, but out of wonder. Out of a sense of, man, I cannot believe how much God has forgiven me. I cannot believe what a debt was forgiven on my behalf that I might be set free. That I'll stand before a holy God one day, and he will say, welcome home, my child. And all because Jesus paid my debt. That's the motivation to forgive. The kind of blood-bought forgiveness and love that can end generations of conflict. Jesus says, if you know this forgiveness, you must forgive. But look at how he ends it. Let's just, let's just double back to this last section of the parable. In Matthew eighteen thirty four to 35, he says, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he had paid all his debt. So, so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking here that what Jesus is saying is that God is threatening you. That he's saying, if, if you don't forgive, then, well, guess what? Forgiveness is going to be withheld from you. But that's not the point in the story. The point is, if there is no desire in you to forgive, you may have never genuinely experienced real forgiveness. The logic of the story goes, if you were forgiven a debt that large, even if it were difficult, you would understand at least the concept of why it is that a follower of Jesus is called to forgive. It's the logical flow on from being having been forgiven so much. See, the religious view that you can work your way to God, there's no room for forgiveness in that. If you earned your way to God by your own good works, then why should you forgive someone else? Their debt's on their own head. They need to sort it out themselves. That's their fault for being so sinful and wicked. But the gospel is if you've been forgiven, that is your motivation. That is what should move you with grace to forgive others. And Jesus says here, if you are of the mind, then in your mind you've written off forgiveness entirely. Like, that's something I don't need to do. He says, you may not have understood the gospel. Be careful. You may not have never fully, really understood the gospel. Maybe you've just been coming to church. Maybe you're part of a Christian family or a culture that has a Christian heritage. But you may have not genuinely experienced the grace of God and forgiveness. Because if you cannot even see in that the desire to forgive, he says, you just may not have experienced real forgiveness. Because the gospel... Gives us the strength to forgive. So let me finish with this. If you are here and skeptical of the claims of Jesus, I would encourage you, have you ever heard of a forgiveness like this? There is no religion in the world that is based on this central concept of forgiveness. All, all the religions have some kind of sense of forgiveness, but ultimately the way that you get right with God is if you do the right things, God will reward you. The Christian faith is the only one that says, no, there was nothing good enough that you could do. God alone had to step in to love and forgive you that you might be made right with him. And this gospel healing has transformed so many lives that it is worth investigating. Even if you're skeptical of the claims, there is nothing like this message in all the world. And I would encourage you to dive into this and we would love to help you with that. Let me say if you're a Christian as well, as difficult as it is, you are called to forgive. Jesus here lays it down in stark terms that if you've been greatly forgiven, you will be called to forgive. And as difficult as Christians, we can wrestle with it. In fact, even in the very mechanics of the gospel, you see that forgiveness is not an easy thing. God couldn't just be like, ah, you guys did me wrong, but whatever. we will just like, let bygones be bygones, right? One theologian said, Forgiveness for humankind is the plainest of duties, but for God, the profoundest of problems. He had to work out how to be a just God at the same time as forgiving sinners, and he did it through the cross. It was not easy. The wrath of God had to be satisfied that sinners might be set free. It is not uncomplicated. But if we have been forgiven so much, we will be called to forgive. And you might be wrestling through a particular situation even on that right now, And we would love for you not to do that alone. If you want to help with that, people to pray with you through that, even to work through that with you, we would love to hear from you. And if not us, then your small group, but any which way it is, God has given us this Christian community who know the forgiveness of Jesus, that we might shine the light of Christ and be a forgiving people. We've been forgiven greatly, and so we will be called to forgive. Let's pray that God would transform us into those kind of people. Father, we are so prone to forget how much we've been forgiven in Jesus. We're prone to minimize our own sin and to focus entirely on the wrongs that others have done or done to us and to forget that before you, we were sinners with a debt, that we had no hope of paying it off, and yet Christ came in our place on our behalf to set us free we just pray that it would be ever on our minds just how much you have forgiven us, that it might be the source of deep and holy joy, that as we contemplate that we were sinners yet now completely and totally set free, that for all those in Christ there is now no condemnation, that it might bring us a deep and abiding joy and it might grant us strength in the moment to forgive, to not hold on to self-righteousness or a feeling of power in having others indebted to us, But that we might freely forgive as we have been freely forgiven. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name.